I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, listeners, and welcome to a special run of guest-hosted episodes of I Was There Too, the show where normally I talk to people who were there in the great and interesting moments of film history. But for the next two months, I'm stepping aside to let a handful of special people take over the hosting duties, because I'm off getting married and honeymooned. So I'll be back directly. But until then, this run of shows, both in the guests as well as the hosts, will be some really really great stuff. How do I know? Because I know who the guests are, and I know who the hosts are, and I will be listening to the interviews as they come just like you, and I can't wait. So today, I give you one of my very best friends, Mark McConville, speaking to Michael Ensign, the snooty hotel manager from Ghostbusters, Titanic, Superman, and many other films. Stay subscribed, write a review of this show on iTunes if you can, and if you ever want to dig back into the archives to hear great episodes like Stephen Tobolowsky, the needle-nosed insurance salesman from Groundhog Day, or Phil Lamar, poor backseat head-wound Marvin from Pulp Fiction, just visit Stitcher Premium or Howl.fm. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back soon. Enjoy. The film, Ghostbusters, the year, 1984, the role, hotel manager. The actor, Michael Ensign. I, I, want, I looked up a lot of information about you on the internet, which is always factual. There's never anything wrong. Uh, and the first thing I saw was Safford, Arizona. You're born Not in- that arrest in Waco? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't catch that. Uh, so I, I, did, I was born in a little town called Safford, Arizona. And were you raised there? No. No. We left when I was very small. Okay. We ended up in another very small little town in Arizona called Scottsdale. And it was very small at that time. And now it's? And now it's Mammoth. Um, and then I spent the first early years of my life in, uh, in the Phoenix area. Sure. And I decided that I, 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 I looked at being an actor very early on. How and early would you say? Twelve. Oh, do you know the you know the exact age? Absolutely, because right. I was a fat kid. I uh, wasn't any good at anything. I, uh-huh. was, I was no sports star. I, I hated sports. I wasn't very smart in school. Okay, and you know, and I got picked on. Sure, but when I was twelve, we were living in Phoenix, and at the little local church where I, we we attended, they had something called a road show, which was a a little Mormon thing that they would put on these little shows and they would tour around to the various other little Mormon congregations All right. and put them on. So I got cast in uh, some kind of Noah's Ark epic. <laughs> and I went out on the stage dressed as a fat purple rabbit and I got a lot of laughs. And I decided that's it. 
I think when I was you, walking home, that's it. I'm going to be an actor. You and I have a lot in common. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> very similar story for me. I had a very similar experience too, yeah. And so I, um, from that point on, it was just a question of, okay, how do I do this? Because that was nowhere in my DNA, nowhere in my food chain was anybody doing this or had done it. Right. No one in your family mm-hmm. is a performer of any kind? or Nope. No. So I, I was on my own. Fortunately, um, I went to a high school, um, first Scottsdale High School, uh-huh. and then to Arcadia High School when it was built in, in Phoenix. And the high school drama teacher was extraordinary, uh, John Hall, who had a master's in scenic design from uh, University of Washington. He could have been teaching at any uh, college or university, but he liked teaching in high school. Right. So he was he was very very professional. So around very very early time, I was set um, a professional standard. Um, they always did a, a major musical. Now, when I say major musical, they uh, the first one I was in was The King and I, and the woman who sang, if you know the know the show, the woman who sang The Head Wife, eventually went on to the Metropolitan Opera. Oh, wow. The woman who sang Anna, the the, the lead, uh-huh. uh, eventually ended up touring uh, in the national tour of Nona Nanette. Uh, the girl right. who danced the, the ballet uh, in, in uh, King and I um, went on to New York City Ballet. This standard, this kind of standard, in Scottsdale, Arizona, <laughs> and they would bring in um, uh, to help the kids in the orchestra. They would bring in. They would actually bring in uh, people from the Phoenix Symphony to play with them. Oh wow! So you had some serious mentorship. Oh yeah, both on stage and in the orchestra yeah. pit. That's amazing. And so it was, um, and that was the way it was with him. And then he moved over to uh, Arcadia High School. At mm-hmm. the time, it was built. It had the best equipped stage in the state of Arizona. The Arizona Republic used to come and review the productions. Oh, wow. Um, and so that was my intro in high school to all of this stuff. Sure. Then he left. Then I went on to do anything that I could do in Phoenix, um, Phoenix Children's Theater, eventually to the Phoenix Little Theater, which is one of the oldest, if not the oldest, little theaters in, in the United States. Right. It had a, its own very nice uh, theater built, sure, custom sure. built. And so I did that, and then, okay, college is coming up. What do I do now? What do I do now? And then I, I had some friends who had been to the, uh, connected with the University of Utah, and they, um, they convinced me I should, I should try to go there. Uh, they had an excellent theater department. Again, mm-hmm. very high professional standards. Sure. They, they just built a brand-new theater, the Pioneer Memorial Theater. I was in the second production uh, on that stage. And what they would do, they would bring in guest artists for every production, some pretty big stars. Uh-huh. And so I had a chance to work with with them. And then eventually, like my senior year, I um, I my scholarship was to be in the company and to be, and I was paid for acting. Oh, that's great! So I got the professional idea in my head. Then at the end of that, I said I wanted more training. So I went on to uh, apply to um, three places that actually took me. Uh, (laughs) Brandeis University in Waltham, Massachusetts, uh, NYU, and Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. So I was seeing the Jews, the Catholics, and the atheists. (laughs) And and the Catholics came through with the best offer. All right. So for a year of graduate study, I, I... I did some of the the classwork, but mainly I toured with their classical touring company. Okay. uh, And we were doing uh, Midsummer Night's Dream and uh, a very truncated version of the the Oristaya and uh, in two Chrysler station wagons and a big truck. (laughs) So now that does – that maybe doesn't sound so glamorous, but to me, I love that kind of thing. I love the sort of – you know, like every, every Hollywood is so everything's big budget, and there's everyone thinks it's this thing that, that. But there's there's live performance going on of all stripes, and it's it's really nice to hear. Like, oh yeah, we were driving around in our cars, just and doing this was, doing these road shows. Twenty, uh, you know, twenty eight states, and I don't know what seven months, eight months. 
So anyway, I did that, and then I really wanted more training. I had I was influenced by some of the people at Catholic U, and they were saying, it, especially at that time, the best training is going to go be in Britain. Yeah, no, this is what I wanted to get into because I read that you were with the Royal Shakespeare Company. Yep. And, and so I went to – I, I auditioned for the Royal Academy of Music Dramatic Art mm-hmm. and, and the London Academy. And uh, that's uh, the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. Um, uh, actually, Rod is the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. And I was accepted by both, but Lambda, the London, had a one-year postgraduate course. And mm-hmm. since I had already – I had a degree, I had all this sort of thing. Lots I wanted, of school. I wanted, I wanted to get – some more training, but I didn't want to spend the rest of my life on the edge of the swimming pool. So right. I went I went to Lambda, did that year course, and then it was like, okay, uh, now what do I do? <laughs> um, and I decided I, if I was going to starve to death, I would rather starve to death in England sure. uh, than in New York because I went over to New York and it was just overwhelming because basically I had been trained as a uh, as an English actor, not right. not the pushy, uh, you know, everybody's going to be a star mentality that I was in, you know, getting in New York. So. Right. Can you speak to that a little bit? I d- in my I have a theater degree, and I growing up and listening to the people that were teaching and mentors, it was very much the sort of understanding that it was very difficult for an American to go to England and and have any level of success as an actor. Well, it, it seems like Brits come here and now, now not so much, but then, but, but yeah, I, I, by various hooks and by crooks, um, I was able to, um, I was able to work there under laws that existed in Britain before they joined the common market, mm-hmm. which meant that if you had an ancestry, a British ancestry, uh, there was the possibility that you were still connected. They'd take you as one of their own. Yeah, that that, (laughs) that you could prove that you had real British roots, et cetera, et cetera. So I did. Okay. Got a lawyer and and went through it all. Oh, wow. So I was able to stay there. But then I thought, hmm, um, I've just been to this drama school. And one of the interesting things with British training or with this training was learning that I didn't put on an English accent. Oh, I lost my American. <laughs> okay. The understanding that, okay, they don't have an accent, you do. Right. That makes sense. So the switch in mind was, was such that you could, you could um, I became very, very fluent. <laughs> and uh, so I could go ahead and audition the, through the British system, mm. which was that at that time, you needed to do 40 weeks of work outside of London. There were two classifications of equity card. One was a, um, a, a red card, which was not temporary, but it was a provisional. Okay. And you needed to get 40 weeks of work outside of London, which meant you had to probably get into the repertory system. Sure. At that time, there were 100, uh, approximately 100 uh, repertory theaters outside of London. So it was a question of auditioning, and they could only take two people, by the way, <laughs> um, at each – each, so uh, odds are theater. low. So um, anyway, I auditioned and I began – I started at the Nottingham Playhouse and then I went to Derby Rep where I put in uh, quite a bit of time. That was that was fun. It was a new play every two weeks and it was very interesting to yeah. be in plays that you were right for, wrong for, sort of for. Whatever uh, they Whatever needed. they wanted, hoping that more people would be in the theater than the drunk sitting on the steps outside <laughs> – <laughs> um, and do you look back at that fondly? Do you? Do well, you... I, I do. I mean, I was as as a friend of mine, David Suchet, by the the, the actor who plays Poirot. Um, sure. He and I shared a dressing room at Stratford a little later on, uh-huh. and uh, he was talking to his mother, and uh, she was saying, "Oh, during we in the forty, we went dancing and we did this, and we and, and, and he said, mother." That's during the Blitz. They were bombing. A war was raging above your head. And she said, yes, dear, but we were young. <laughs> and that's – I was young. So, right, right, right. Uh, it, was, it was very challenging. I'm very grateful for it mm-hmm. because you pick up a lot of skills. Right. 
I mean, nobody has a monopoly on talent. No country has a monopoly on acting talent. No, that's certainly true. But the British train actors um, with that, I mean, you've heard it a dozen times, the old Noel Coward dictum of when the young actor asked him, so Noel, what should I do? And he said, speak up so we can hear you and don't trip over the furniture. (laughs) And that's how they train you. They work on your voice. They work on your body. They give you texts. You learn how to handle texts and Mm -hmm. words and enjoy words and all of that. Um, Instead of worrying about your motivation, it's Uh it's much more practical. Yes. And then you have to go out and get experience. You get enough experience, maybe you're worth hiring. Right. So that's how the British system worked. And British actors still have more opportunity to work than American actors. Certainly, yeah. So anyway, I, I, I did the rep thing. Um, what brought you back to the States and launched sort of – I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a heaping helping of live performance. Yeah, and, and then, I, I've actually done close to 100 professional plays. Wow. So then you're – So what which, happened was – But your television and film resume, you're no slouch there either. Well, what happened was that I got more and more interesting, interested in, um, in film and television. Sure. Um, I went into the Royal Shakespeare Company because that was one of the things I really wanted to do. You had your sights set on and it. And I had just done a, a, a quite a good part in a in what's now quite a famous British television series called Colditz. And my agents were all excited because there's money in television, there's money in film, mm-hmm. and there's not a lot in the theater. But I was determined to do the RSC. And I got in to the RSC because I also sing or I sang. And uh, I was able to convince them that I was far grander and better trained singer because they wanted a couple of the parts sung like an operatic aria. Okay. In, and, and play the parts I had in the, in the company too. But anyway, I, I got into the RSC. I, I did my almost three years and I was thrilled with that. And I came out, uh, then it was promptly unemployed for 11 months. Uh, <laughs> the greatest company in the world, and you As sitting it. there waiting for your equi- British equivalent of unemployment and wondering if you're going to eat the next day. Sure. So I, I came out of the RSC, and I was, again, so interested in film and television because Alan Parker, uh, Sir Alan Parker, mm-hmm. um, now – he was the king of British commercials back then. Okay. And I started doing commercials for him. In England, still? In England, yeah. Okay. And I started doing commercials for him. And um, what's interesting, of course, with the RSC, they got a big chuckle out of the fact when we went on our first tour, which was over here, mm-hmm. and I handed in an American passport. He said, <laughs> oh, you're American. <laughs> mm. They were very amused by it. Because I had no idea. I'd been with the company a year. Yeah. Uh, so well, again, I think that's so makes- you, somebody from Safford, Arizona can play Shakespeare in Shakespeare's hometown with the Royal Shakespeare Company. You've got a pretty good accent. Yeah. I, I mean, I, it really truly does speak to that sort of the, the, the – it doesn't really flow that way much. No, Americans no, do no. not go and have the experience that you had. I oh, think yeah. it's really a marvelous thing. So I was, I was very – I was delighted that that happened. But Alan – started putting me in commercials, and I was playing quintessential Englishman. I was the cliche Englishman. Oh, wow. Um, and he would cast me in commercial after commercial. Well, at a certain point, one very dreary around Christmas time, uh, winter, and of course, as usual, I was unemployed. And uh, The best time to be the, unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the casting director said, come on down, we want you to audition for this part for Alan Parker in this commercial. And so I threw on some clothes and was out the door. When Alan was told I was coming in, he said to uh, Joyce Golly, who was the casting director, mm-hmm. why is it me, Michael? My, Michael's, uh, my, th- this American part, uh, uh, you know, Michael's to— Oh, he had to, no idea had no either. Idea. <laughs> so I went in and I read for uh, one of uh, Howard Hughes' Mormon Mafia. They were serializing the Howard Hughes story in the, Daily, in the Sunday Express. Okay. And they were doing vignettes from— from that, and so it had uh, dramatization of Howard Hughes and and these guys, this Mormon mafia around him, and so I went in and read for Alan. And he says, "Hmm, how can you do that? Why you do that?" <laughs> and then I explained, "Right." So there I was. Right. Well, that directly led to 
so much stuff. I was, a lot I of was, connective tissue. I, know. I was doing um, uh, a very interesting play because it was so interesting to there's one of the late Tennessee Williams plays called The Red Devil Battery Sign. And a friend of mine, Estelle Kohler, was the star in it. And she said, darling, there's a part in there. You must come and audition. <laughs> and I said, well, okay. She says, it's a horrible play. It's not very good. But Tennessee is here. He's actually here all through the rehearsal period and, and is with us. So I thought, how many times can you be in a play with Tennessee Williams there right. doing it? Of his plays. So anyway, I got in. And um, I, I was doing that play in the West End um, at the Phoenix Theater. And Alan rang up um, between the matinee and evening one day and said, Michael, I'm doing this movie called Midnight Express. And I, I, I've written a part in it for you. You, you want to do it? I said, of course. Right. <laughs> he said, I, I know, mate, but are you, you, you know, you're doing this. Uh, you, you're doing this play. I mean, what if you? I said, I, I'll, it'll, I'll be there. It's, I'll I make said, it work. Alan, I'll burn the theater down. I'll be there. <laughs> and then, of course, it did close before I had to be uh, on location in Malta with Midnight Express. Uh huh. And it was an American part, and it was due directly to what I'd done in that those commercials. Right, right. So I played this uh, Stanley Daniels, who was the um, American consul who keeps trying to get the the Billy Hayes character out, played by Brad Davis, um, out of prison. So I went down there. Uh, it was really wonderful experience. Was it, was it wildly different from the stage experience? It seems to me, I'm getting you, you just had oodles of stage time. Through your through through the years, is this your is that your first? It's the first big movie, large, but, but I had learned a lot. Again, Alan taught me a lot through commercials. Yeah, that's and, not easy work. And when I did Colditz, uh, because I had quite a lot of credits even then at twenty eight, um, the first day of filming, uh, I wasn't needed. My scenes weren't being shot until the afternoon, mm-hmm. but I went out to the location. And watched like oh, yeah. what they were doing. Right, right, right. <laughs> and then uh, you then learn a lot just when, by when being a fly I on was the wall. up in front. I only blew one take, and they were asking me to exit uh, camera left, and I went right because I was thinking stage right and stage left. And sure. But anyway, um, I I had had some of that experience. But when I got on to the um, to Midnight Express. Um, it was it was interesting because back in the olden days, um, they had to ship the film up to London to be processed, and then he, so he couldn't see the dailies. Oh wow! And for, there was a three day lag, and so I I um, I was sweated it out because there one of the last days of filming. Um, I know Alan, and he doesn't take do many takes, and uh, he was going over and over again with this two hander with me and Brad. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, no, it's he not doesn't it. get what he wants. Yeah. I'm in trouble. Um, but three days later, he said, you know, I should have trusted you. you. It was all in your eyes. You were doing what I wanted. Right. Um, so anyway, the movie the movie was released. I was doing – right after the movie, I went into the West End and I did uh, 18 months in the musical Irene as the leading man. In, in the West End. You're a busy fellow at this time. I was. What <laughs> happened? Who stopped the truck? It doesn't seem like Who it stopped. Who turned the lights on and could see actually what it was? <laughs> well, if you don't mind, I would like to jump forward sure. if this is all the appetizer for the T-bone steak that is Ghostbusters. That is the film I want. Ghostbusters. That's the film I want to that's, concentrate on. That's what on. you can cut everything to this. No, okay. no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, the rest I, of it's just I'm totally, an old actor talking too much. I'm totally enthralled by all of that stuff because I do think it is a monumental achievement to go, again, to go across the pond and, and work as an American in Britain for as long as you did. As I think. a Brit. <laughs> yeah, right. Nobody knew you're hiding in plain sight. Uh, so practically speaking, where do you think you were in your career when Ghostbusters came? The movie that brought, because um, uh, Midnight Express was up for an Academy Award. Right. It was nominated for Best Picture. And my quick little uh, Hollywood story is that uh, on Oscar night, I was uh, I was in my tacky North Hollywood apartment with Motel 6 furniture, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, ironing a shirt in my underwear, right. and watching the Oscars on a rented black and white TV. And then on the screen came a two-hander scene between me and Brad Davis mm-hmm. representing the picture. Wow. So there was the Hollywood glamour. There was the whole story. And that 
so, and it didn't win, but it I got my revenge later because it because Titanic did. I'm in a member of the Academy, so there. Uh, <laughs> Take that. Uh, you know. So anyway, um, I I that's what brought me over. I was called in to audition for Ghostbusters. And I originally auditioned for the William Atherton part. Oh, right? sure. The guy from the EPA. The and they part, had me back twice for that. The part that ruined his life. Yeah, and they should have given it to me. But I, <laughs> but I, I, um, I went in twice on that. My agents were excited about it. I mm-hmm. was excited about it. We thought they were going to just ask. And then if, later on, it, so the story was told me that uh, William Atherton had a, a deal with the studio and they had to use him in so many pictures. Gotcha. And that was one they assigned. So I went home and cried. And <laughs> much later on, the phone rang. And and they said, do, do you want a booby prize? you want a consolation prize? Right. And I said, sure, come down and play this hotel manager for us. Right. So um, I went down to the Biltmore Hotel here in mm-hmm. Los Angeles. And a very, very long night. They filmed what would normally have taken three days, but they were running out of money and running out of time. Yeah. So they were crowding that all in one mammoth and mammoth uh, filming session. I was going to ask you that exact question of uh, how long did it take? And it's so we're, are we talking just six p.m. till they're done? Till till it was light and they had to you know give up their location because it is a functioning hotel. Yeah. Um, but that's that's how I got that. And oddly enough, because of the great success of Ghostbusters, it um, it really did help my career, even though it's quite a – I mean it's not quite in Britain. They, about a small part, they say it's a spit and a cough. And <laughs> it, but it's, it's certainly more than that. Oh, I think it's a fantastic scene. It's and that's what this show is all about: is is actors that are present for these scenes that you don't, you can't forget in these giant movies. So I do want to ask you this: at any point during that epic night that you were shooting, did you feel like you were part of a thing? I that was, was under tremendous pressure. Okay, first of all, because they were going, and Ivan was not in a good mood. And it was uh, – it was. there's a long shot where I greet them at the door. Yes. And I'm talking to them. We're walking. We're talking. We're walking. We're talking. We have, and there was a turn that had to be made so that we end, ended up at the doors uh, of the ballroom. Right. And there were a number of, of camera moves and cues that were cued off mm-hmm. of that dialogue. So – I'm very professional, know all my words, right. and, and I'm I'm there, and I'm going, and suddenly, what they're saying bears no resemblance to yes. anything that I saw on the printed page. Okay, and they were making up stuff and having fun and doing all this kind of stuff, and it would blow, and and it would blow take after take. Sure, because and I, I had to be sure. Oh, okay, now maybe I better throw my line in here, but I was certainly not getting the cues. And so finally, Ivan really blew up at me. Oh wow! And I thought, no, and I can't, I can't turn around and say, well, blow up at your stars because they're the reason. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've I, read, I've read several accounts that Bill Murray doesn't say a line in the script; he's making up everything as he goes. And, and, and that's, and that's what uh, Bill Murray and uh, it was either Bill Murray or Dan who said, you know, back off, Ivan. It, don't blame him. We're doing it. Oh, great. Yeah, That's so, nice to hear. So they stepped up and, and saved me. Because um, you're under immense pressure. It's, it's not only one thing with the lines, but that the, the, the moving and not – there's so many moving parts that an audience, a film going on, it doesn't see that it just takes a little thing for them to have to go, nope, go back. We have to start over. And that's a lot of reset for uh, for those th- that kind of scene that was so complicated. Like right. I said, they were trying to condense into one night what – could easily have taken three days, right? Right. To shoot. So in that opening scene, I, I in why I rewatched the film last night, and I watched your scenes very closely because there are some things I thought I. When you watch under this microscope, you see things that maybe you hadn't seen before in the film. I've seen Ghostbusters dozens of times. Bill Murray is sort of manhandling you as you walk down the hall in the mm-hmm. final cut. That seemed very. Uh, just an extension of him, him improvising lines and words. Were you? It seemed very much like you weren't expecting that from him. I wasn't expecting it, but I, I usually, uh, well, I'm a character actor, right? So the character, whatever he did to me, would have to have the character reacting 
as the character does. Oh, and you do such a good and, job of reacting you know, to him. So yeah. that's uh, that's that's what uh, you know came into play on that. Uh-huh. Um, but it, no, it was uh, I got along fine with them. I subsequently worked with Dan Aykroyd again on the couch trip. Yes, um, but um, he he's very nice, by the way. Sure. Uh, just, just a really super guy. How much? So, in just in that opening scene where you're walking and you end up at the elevators, there was there a deleted scene, or is there stuff on the cutting room floor between that? Because it seems like it cuts pretty abruptly. It's almost like you drop them off at the elevator, and then it's the there's the guy chomping on the cigar, and they talk about the cockroach on the twelfth floor. Uh, probably, do you have any recollection of that? Or it was you know. <laughs> That was, uh, you know, what, 75 pounds ago when I had hair. (laughs) (laughs) And I I can relate, too, to it's work and you're so – you're probably so dialed in that you can't remember. I I have a terrible time recalling what happened on those days. I remember remember some of – you know, some of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I I enjoyed – I love working. I'm I'm one of those actors that despite what we've just – been talking about. Right. I don't like talking about it. And sure. I don't like, I don't like the show busy aspect of it. Yeah. But I love the doing of it. Absolutely. So that's why I'm still an actor after 47 years. Sure. Because that's what I love. Um, is this character based on anybody or does the character have a name? It's such an uppity, uptight person, right? He is uppity. He is, uh, he's, and boy, did I pay a price for that. From then on, I would get all sorts that, of- That's your you offer. Know, prissy, prissy little men in bow ties with a mustache. That You know, that's what would would come my way. Right. Um, well, again, that British training. He was very much a, a British character, an English character without the accent. Without right. Without being British. Right. I mean, it- But a sense of decorum, sense of, of purpose. Yes. Uh, worried that- it, the, about the image of the hotel. Everything has to be ship It has to be right. We don't want to have a bad impression with things. And uh, so that all translates to a character along with people who are, you know, nuts. Right. <laughs> and But I, I think you might, you say it's a small part, but I think it's the first time in the film because I've rewatched it again, like I said, and, and Bill Murray is really a creep. In the movie, I mean, if you if you choose to watch it that way, and just I mean, he's hitting on the woman with the psychology test, and any female that walks by, he's relentlessly hitting on them, and that's fine. I mean, that's a this is just as good a character choice as any, but he's he treats everybody pretty poorly on a just a base level, and I think you're the first character that Peter Vinkman encounters that you you sort of give him you stand up to him a bit. There's definitely a like. I want this done and I want it done right. Like that shines through in these scenes. So then I, just some practical questions that I have for you. When they're in there shooting the, the – they're, they're capturing the ghost. You're checking the door and there's the scene with the woman where I assure you it'll be all fine. Just practically speaking, there's no noise going on. Are you reacting to just somebody yelling and the table flips over or are they, are you reacting to actual? As I recall, there wasn't that. They just told me that, you know, okay, there's all, you're hearing all of this stuff. Right. And now you hear a table get flipped over. That it was, it was more that they weren't actually doing nice things for me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's one thing I noticed for the first time ever is, uh, is onion head. Does that ring a bell? I guess the ghost Slimer that everyone knows as Slimer was originally written as Onion Head. And he was supposed to be this stinky, smelly ghost. And so when Dan Aykroyd comes out with the trap and the f- smoke is coming off of it. Oh, yeah. You stench. grab your handkerchief and cover your nose. Yeah, because the stench. Uh, is that, that's a directed choice? Um, well, yeah. They said, you know, this thing it is, smells just, horrible. It's just, just terrible smell. So just practically speaking as an actor, the handkerchief switches hands at one point, which maybe drives you crazy. I'm not sure if that does or not. But any time I'm working as an actor, I always think, like, I, how are my hands? How, how do I match my, it? How do I does, that, it? does that factor in for you just on a nuts and bolts level? Do you worry about that kind of stuff? I, I do if, if it's, you know, if it's I, I do worry about it. I, I try to always get it right. But um, the thing that I do with especially film mm-hmm. – 
I mean, stage, you rehearse, 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 rehearse so that you can do it eight times a week and make it look like it's happening for the first time. With film, you're providing moments. And so when I when they say action, I try to blot my mind mm-hmm. and just enter in to that moment. Right. And rely on what the stimuli is coming from the other actors or the situation. And I'm not as technical mm-hmm. as if we had rehearsed it forever. And right. It, you know, it's probably just a mistake on my part. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's clear like there's a cut at some point and that it's in editing and they figure you won't notice. And I, again, I've seen it dozens of times. I never noticed it. But there's a handkerchief thing that's the, going on and it's and, fine. It doesn't it doesn't detract from the film. But I, I just did, worked on a project where I was handcuffed and I thought – Every time we were shooting, I thought, well, what did I do with my hands? Right. It's such oh, no, a no. weird thing to think about. But I hate props. <laughs> I tell anytime I'm on a set, I, no props. Yeah, uh, I, I do a silly little recurring thing on, uh, on a show called Kirby Buckets. And they uh, – it's a Disney Channel thing. Uh-huh. And they, uh, they, in, they love to try to give me stuff because a lot of actors love all the toys. Right. And I don't. I would rather just keep my hands beside me. Then I know where they are. Right. <laughs> and I don't have to worry about where I put that and how I put that and right. all the rest of it. So I'm, I'm one of these people who are minimal props. Uh, and maybe that's why yeah. you see me <laughs> screwing up a hanky. Uh, I love the scene, and I do think it sets the tone for the film. I just think it's a fantastic – I mean, it's the first ghost they capture. It, it, it legitimizes the business. And when he asks you for the $5,000 that – that very snooty, I won't pay it, is it's just sublime. It's fantastic. Well, it's, uh, it's interesting. When I did two movies that, that same time. Uh-huh. Uh, one was All of Me. Yes. Uh, with Steve Martin and Lily Tomlin. And when I read the script, I laughed out loud. I thought it was f- so funny. Yeah. I read Ghostbusters, and I went, huh? <laughs> and then uh, I, uh, my agent came with me, and we saw Ghostbusters at a cast and crew screening. And we came out saying, it's okay. Right. You know, nothing. It, both of us sort of thought it was, yeah, okay. Then I took my godsons, who were quite young, to see it in Westwood. Uh-huh. And we get there, and there's a line around the block. And then we, we go up there, and they spotted me in the line immediately, knew exactly who I was and what I played, and went in. And then suddenly people are like Rocky Horror Picture Show, shouting out lines before the characters can say it. Oh, wow. And I thought, okay, I really <laughs> missed this one. <laughs> Is it, it – that must happen a lot, I think. You know, you just never know what you're working on, it, how it will be critically received. I oh, think, sure. And I think maybe – I'm speaking for you here, but I can certainly say to me, I think it's – you've sort of said it already. As an actor, you just want to do the work. Mm. And it's, it's the audience's job to receive it however they receive it. Uh, and that seems like the case. I mean, again, I think your performance in this film is really funny and it's really grounded and it, it helps legitimize the main characters of the film in a way that is, is fantastic. Well, it actually got me a lot of work. Yeah. And I want, now I want to do some quick, we have a little bit of time left. So I want to have some quick questions about some of your other work. Let's talk about Titanic. How much water are you still finding in your body? Uh, well, something <laughs> happened to the digestion. Um, <laughs> That was that was very, very interesting because uh, I auditioned for that, but I never met James Cameron. I, uh, Mally Finn, who's no longer with us, uh, was the casting director, and she was determined I was going to play that part. So I came in and I auditioned on tape, mm-hmm. and then uh, Cameron spoke about it and then auditioned again so they could have it. And um, finally, I got the part, but he had never met me. And then I, I got down to uh, Rosarito, and it was it was like ten and a half weeks of location, uh, right. being held in a velvet prison, a, a resort, uh, right, where where we where where we were, um, and it was I you know by this point that was that was what twenty years ago, but I've done a lot of work up before that, right. so it wasn't like it was in it was a new game. But I've never been in anything that had that kind of scale to it. One night sure. we had fifteen hundred extras oh, on the set. That's unbelievable. And uh, and then the night that we were going to do the big, uh, the big uh, sinking of the ship and and all of that. I the night before Cameron called me down to the set and said, uh, 
Michael, how do you feel about stunts? And I said, James, I am a coward, <laughs> religious in it. In fact, my family coat of arms is a sheep running away. <laughs> and and he, he, he laughed. And so I was taken care of. But it was a very um, – they did as much as they could for safety, but it was always going to be a little out of control because, again, if we had not got that set uh, it, it done on that night – to reset it would have taken, I believe, five weeks. Right, because it's pretty to, much to reset abject destruction. E everything again. So it was a lot of pressure. Um, and there were some things they couldn't uh, determine. And uh, in, in, with my scene, uh, well, the, where I'm coming down the, state, the stairs and uh, – Asking for a brandy. He, and he says, uh, uh, no, we've dressed in our best and prepared to go down like gentlemen. But we would like a brandy. That's my line. I made that. Oh, nice. Uh, Cameron said, we need something to get you over to um, Aster because there's a scene that's missing. Yes. Um, and I said, he said, well, ask him for a drink. So, but we would like a brandy was, was my little contribution. I love it. I love it. And it was because of that, I think it stayed in the picture because when they started cutting stuff, he was going to try, he, he there was talk of cutting that whole sequence. Right. And, um, and the, the stills photographer, and I'm blanking on her name, she was lovely. She went to camera and had a little fit. She said, that's one of the famous lines that has come down through history that was real in Titanic. Guggenheim actually said that because oh, wow. his steward uh, was one of the last people they put on one of the ship, on one of the boats leaving the yeah, boat because yeah. they needed an extra sailor. It's and, also like a moment of humanity. Yeah, and he reported back to what what Guggenheim was doing during that period of time. Right. And that was that was one of the famous lines. The other thing that we didn't shoot, I I could I hope that Cameron would do it was another famous line of his where they're lowering the boat with this Johnson, this guy in it, mm -hmm. and he says, "Tell my wife I played the game straight to the end." And that no woman's life was lost because Ben Guggenheim was a coward. Because by oh, that wow. time, people were getting the boats. Yeah. Men. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, – you know, I, I really liked working with Cameron. Sure. You don't get a chance to work with a genius very often in this life. Right. And he is. But he has an absolute laser beam focus. And you need to get in – on that. Get in his zone. Get in the zone. <laughs> go with it. Do not challenge it. Yeah. Do not try to divert from it. And you're fine. If you do, he's an equal opportunity. Uh, Insulter. Use the, <laughs> use the words. But he, he, will, he will not tolerate it. Oh, wow. So um, I could spot that. I've worked with a lot of directors. I, as long as they're really good and doing great work, I'm a sucker for talent. Right. Uh, I want to ask you about Superman. I mean, this is, I mean, it's quick. I just want if oh, you have yeah, anything, yeah, that, it, anything that comes no, to mind Super, when I say it was Superman. Really interesting because that was one of the last things I did before I left to England to come back over here. Uh -huh. And uh, myself and another guy, we 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 would go out to the studio, and they took us in for a number of days, and and we were actually being shot with the um, uh, with the, the B unit. But we're still on the same stage with the agent. Sure, so yeah, that makes sense. So the final day, we went up to the director, which is Richard Richard Donner, is it? Uh, well, yes, yeah. yes. Went up to him and said, you know, just saying thank you and 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 shake his hand. Right. And, and he's looking at us. Who, Who are, are you? <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> How did you get on the stage? Uh, but the the naughty thing about, or not naughty, but something that was a problem with that was that for Superman two. They were using footage from, from the first one. Oh, no. Without with trying to get away with it. Right. And fortunately, I believe British Equity went to battle and, and got that changed. Yeah. So I don't know whether some of mine might have, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah. All right. Uh, I want to ask you about the wall. Well, I mean, these are this is this is Alan Parker again. Alan, it is. Oh, that's an yeah. Alan Parker connection. See, Alan, Alan put me in all his commercials and. When I left England and after Midnight Express, I said, Alan, if you ever need me, just call me. I'll be here. And I don't need to talk about money. Anything. Just If you need me, tell me what time to show up. Oh, that's so neat. So he called me from London and said, Michael, I need you here in, you know, 10 days at, you know, out at the studio. I said, good, I'll be there. And he was, he had taken over the wall because uh, Michael Sarazen, who was the, 
his lighting cameraman, his cinematographer. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was going to be his, I believe, first director thing. Yeah. And Alan was just producing it. And the, it came back that, the, at least what I was told, that the studio wouldn't approve it with Michael. They had to have Alan direct it. So Alan oh. had to take it over. And it was it was fun because I used to – they used to pick – Alan was a great one for sending cars to pick up people <laughs> because he, he knew that was the way you guarantee somebody is on time and in there. Oh, <laughs> you, that's funny. You, you, you get them there. Right. So um, the car that would come and collect me was Bob Geldof's um, car. Oh, so wow. I, I got to ride out with him every morning for about 45 minutes in the yeah, car yeah. and got to know him a little bit and immense respect for him. Very, very, very smart man. He seems intense. Very intense, but very ex- well-educated. That's wonderful. A real intellectual. Here's another one. Now, my, I don't remember this at all, but my mother will tell you that I would plant myself in front of the television and could not be disturbed when the Dukes of Hazard was on. Uh, Do you remember anything about this? Oh, yes. It's was, a two-parter. Yes, it I don't was. remember it. So I, I kind of want to go back and watch. Uh, I, again, I can't remember exactly. I think I'm a crooked politician. Undercover some, Dukes, yeah. parts one and two. I think I'm I, – I, I play a lot of second villain, and that was another one of those second villain roles. Okay. And uh, I play a lot of red herring roles where you think – You think you're you the think bad the guy. You think the bad guy, but actually he's not, and they shoot me too early on in the picture. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it it was well. You fun. clearly made it to part two. Yeah, it was it was it was fun, and I remember being on location somewhere in this house that we were filming in, and I know a little bit about antique furniture and stuff. And I was looking at this this secretary desk, and I I thought, wow, this is really good. And then I checked it, and it was real <laughs> Chinese Thomas Chippendale from the 18th century, practically. Priceless! Wow, and they're and using it, was it part on part of the Warner Brothers, uh, you know, uh, set of props. They're using it on the set of yeah. Hazard County. Uh, yeah, Hazard County. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I, I, again, all of this stuff is fun. Yeah. Oh, uh, no doubt and, about it. And Dukes is factors into so many little kids' uh, heritage. Yeah, <laughs> certainly mine. What about uh, Golden Girls? Well, that was fun too. Uh, <laughs> what wasn't fun? Let me think about it. Um, it that was great because, um, first of all, it was a well-established show, uh, and I got and I was the only. And Terry Hughes, the director, mm-hmm. has been so good to me through my career. He's a wonder. He's English. He's he's a wonderful guy, and uh, he, he put me in that. And great fun playing another one of Blanche's trashy boyfriends. Right. <laughs> And uh, what was fun about – what was interesting about it was that by this point, those women pretty much had become their character. Right. You had them – they were they were offstage and when they were greedy – you know, it was just like they were – they were filming it. They had all become very much those characters. Well, and I think that that's sort of capturing lightning in a bottle for actors and actresses is if you find a role that fits you like a – Good, like an old pair of shoes, like something that's just it's you at the core, and maybe you push it out a little bit as an actor, or you or you rein it in a little bit. But if if the personality of the character matches who you are in real life, in a way, I think that's really where well, people by, shine. By that point, they had yeah, yeah, um, and it was very interesting because they would when we'd rehearse, then they go off to their little bungalows. Except for Betty, Betty is magnificent. <laughs> Betty would stay on the set. Betty would keep. On the set, knitting, and I'd sit down and talk to her, and we had great chats uh, while the other gals were gone. Sure. Um, but uh, one of the rehearsals, I knock on the door, Blanche opens and, and says, Donald, and I come in. Well, we did it a couple of times, and she wasn't happy. She was complaining. And I thought, wait a minute, I'm used to getting compliments, not <laughs> criticism. And then I said, okay. I went against the director's instruction, and when she – I knocked on the door. She opened and said, Donald, I came in. I walked downstage. I turned with my back to the equivalent of the audience and the camera right. and played the scene that way. And then she was happy. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I said, nobody except my mother and a couple other people are going to tune into this show because I'm on it. They're, they're tuning in to see these gals. Right, right. Um, I mean, it worked out. I mean, they, 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 were, they were all nice. B was kind of difficult 
she wouldn't speak to me. Um, <laughs> but then I then I realized, and I'll give her credit for this. And I mean, she's gone now, but um, apparently she was very hard of hearing. Oh, so when I would come in and say good morning, Miss Arthur, unless she was maybe looking at me, she probably didn't even hear me. Wow. Yeah. Um, and uh, the rest of them, but Betty. Betty I worked with later on in that short-lived Marie Osmond thing mm-hmm. and then on Boston Legal. But that yeah. woman, with all the people she's met and everything that she's had in her life, I hadn't seen her for years. And I walk on the set and she said, hi, Michael. That's and lovely. knew me and knew where we had worked together. And I was so I – was, I was touched but so impressed. Yeah, yeah. That this now very old lady – who's had years and years and years of experience and thousands of people that she's worked and met would remember me and remember my name. I think that's as sweet a place to end it as ever. Michael, is is there anything that you are either currently working on or something that you've done in your career that you wished more people would check out? I guess that's two separate questions. Are you working on anything currently? What can we look for you in, if anything? Uh, Obituaries. Well, what about uh, – is there anything you've done in, in your career that you think, oh, I w- I'd like to get some more eyeballs on that? It's fine if that's the answer is no, there isn't. Um, I don't know. There's uh, – again, I I like things that are a little more obscure. I, I'm enough of an English actor. I like very subtle things. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been things on television that um, that I w- wish that a few more people had seen. Sure. Um, but on, on, on feature films that I really felt strongly about, um, I think I think honestly the, the some of the earliest stuff like Midnight Express. Midnight Express. I, I think Midnight I, – I watched it not long ago and I think it holds up pretty good. I'm certainly guilty of not having seen it. So I think that's yes. what I'll be watching this weekend. It's uh, – it's it still holds up. I love it. Michael, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.